Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember, go check out the website at dormroomhistory.com. This is one of those episodes that maps and images will go a long way. Because, as the title so artfully spoils, we indeed have made it to the true introduction of Buddhism. Now, quick side announcement. Many of you who use Apple may have realized this, that while my episodes recently were posted, they were not playable. After weeks of back and forth with my RSS feed provider and Apple, the solution actually was figured out. So look, Apple requires an enhanced file. Fair enough. But my RSS feed stopped accepting AAC files. So when I went to upload the last two, I simply was told by that website, nope, we only take MP3. I changed the file types, then submitted it. Didn't think anything of it, but that was wrong. <laughs> the last two episodes on Apple should be playable now. So yeah, sorry about that. And I was slow to the issue because I personally use Spotify. So I was only alerted to this by Keith and Brian on the website and by Alex via Twitter. And hey, Alex, go White Sox, what do you say? Anyway, last time on the main thread, we covered the foundation-setting rule of Emperor Guangwu. Now, we turn to his successor. One, remember, that came via some controversy, but I realized that the show is again slipping into the history of Chinese emperors. But don't worry, that is all gonna change because wars, rebellions, and in this case, religions will come. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 51. Welcome Emperor Ming and Buddhism. Emperor Ming becomes emperor in 57. His last name was a little sus at the time, and thus had to abandon his last name Zhuang, which was inauspicious, but I'm going to be honest, that's of little importance to us. He is, in year 57, Emperor Ming, and that's just what we're going to call him. We will get into his most famous contribution to history in due time, though. And it's less of a contribution as it is, he existed in his position when something showed up. Early on, he showed great promise, and it came in the form of the treatment of his half-brothers. Remember, there was an issue with Emperor Guangwu and picking a wife and a son. He had a political marriage, which bore the first sons, but then his childhood sweetheart, as we went over a few episodes ago, had a son of her own later on. Emperor Ming is the son bore by the sweetheart. Remember, Age doesn't matter as the only variable on who's going to take the throne. It is the oldest from the Empress. These guys, again, were not monogamous, as we know well by now. One year into his reign, Emperor Ming's half-brother and the former crown prince died. No, it wasn't suspicious. There wasn't anything bad there. At least that's what they say. But regardless... Instead of burying this side of the family and forgetting about them, literally and metaphorically, Emperor Ming organized a huge and honored funeral, something you don't see emperors doing 
for former crown princes. I mean, that's not something you do. Emperor Ming then went about showing extreme humility again. It wasn't just for show for his half-brother and former crown prince, because he went about engaging in Confucian rituals to honor the people that helped him, which meant that he was honoring his family and government officials alike. In year 60, this literally continued, as he, like Emperor Xuan so long ago had done many episodes back, had the portraits of the officials that helped his father reestablish the Han Dynasty put up on a palace tower. Remember that whole thing where he put all the officials' portraits and some descriptions under them? Yeah, well, Emperor Ming's doing the same thing. So this guy is clearly down to exist in the real, recognized, real mindset. Okay, but the Han Dynasty doesn't keep existing because people who do good work have portraits made. There's more to leadership than that. Policy has to be done. By the time Emperor Ming comes onto the scene and a few years into his reign, the northernmost Xiongnu offshoots continued to be a pesky fly for the Eastern Han Dynasty. And in 65, Emperor Ming and the Han finally drew their line in the sand. The southern Xiongnu tribes were allied now to the Han, but if they continued, the Han that is, continued to ignore these minor incursions onto their now ally, the Han risked defections from the southern and allied Xiongnu to the northern and definitely not allied Xiongnu. So, the Han established the Du Liao army with its main objective of protecting the northern borders, drawing a line in the sand and stopping the Xiongnu in the north from coming in, and thus protecting the Xiongnu in the south. Yeah, the Han are now protecting Xiongnu tribes. We have indeed come a long way. And in 66, he got the ball rolling on what would be the first university in Chinese history. And thus, like most things that are a first in Chinese history, it was thus one of the first in the world. But look, I, I must clarify. He did not establish the actual first university. No. He merely started an imperial Confucian school for the nobles of the dynasty, with Xiongnu nobles attending too. That would evolve into the first university over time. It was in Luoyang, and allowing Xiongnu nobles, though, I will say, into school is the tried and true method of getting rid of one's, well, barbaric enemies absorb them. This will lead into the denotation of cooked and uncooked barbarians or tribesmen in China. Cooked is the word they use, and cook means that they were sinocized. Uncooked? Well, if you were an uncooked nomadic horseman, you were probably still a full-fledged barbarian. Cooked barbarians, again, I must say, is the language the Chinese would use. I'm not making this up. And the best way to quote-unquote cook them is by settling them down, educating them, and bringing them truly under the fold of the settled civilization. Letting them run around and terrorize and raid, well, that's not very good for getting them to get in line. This right here is the start of that. There will be a lot more of it, and by the time we get to Genghis Khan, which, oh, look at that, I'll be 37 years old, but all jokes aside, this is really where that policy starts to take a hold. Because it's one thing to break the Xiongnu down, it's another thing 
to bring them within the fold of the Han Dynasty. And this is seen in Rome as well. You have Germanic people that are ended up, well, they're in the Senate eventually. You educate them, you slow them down, you get them involved in the economic process. And while they still might not be truly Roman or they're not truly Han Chinese, they want to be. They're part of the system and they have no need to go back to their old ways. The Han under Emperor Ming were not all peace and love, though. Again, this is the ancient world, and punishments would be harsh. And there were a few very notable examples here early on. In 66, the Prince of Guanglin, G-U-A-N-G-L-I-N, he fashioned himself as the emperor classic, organized a rebellion, and like most rebellions, it was snuffed out before it even kicked off. Emperor Ming, and he's still pretty lenient, actually let this guy off easy after the Prince of Guanglin confessed without protest. Let off easy usually just means he wasn't castrated or killed, but Emperor Ming let this guy live uncastrated, kept his title, sort of, and really just stripped the guy of his political rights and his influence. Dang, that's light. Any normal person would have been relieved and gone home and stayed out of trouble if this is the sentencing they got for the crime they got caught doing. But the Prince of Guanglin was not rational like you and me. And the moment he got off easy, he went about hiring warlocks to curse the emperor just the next year. Dude, come on. Emperor Ming found out about this in about four seconds and then forced the guy to commit suicide or else. Now, you must be saying that's not that harsh. That's one guy who tried to take over the empire. It didn't do a very good job, but oh, don't worry. There's more warlocks and there's about to be a lot more killing. And it's good that warlocks are showing up now because they will keep appearing here as I just alluded to. In the year 70, one of Emperor Ming's other stepbrothers, and he had many because, well, the emperors aren't monogamous, well, this stepbrother hired his own warlocks to create taboo blessings on jade cranes and golden turtles. This, back then, and even now probably, was highly suspect. And more highly suspect was his own rebellious bent on these warlock-blessed objects. He wasn't just writing weird things and doing weird ceremonies. He was writing some openly rebellious things on them. And just like the Prince of Guanlin, though, Emperor Ming starts off kind of nice. But this time, things would indeed spiral quickly and without much provocation. There was no slap on the wrist, and then he goes about redoing it. He was let off pretty easy, but the stepbrother ends up just killing himself in shame. Emperor Ming then orders a full-fledged investigation into his stepbrother's little cohort there. He wasn't doing this stuff alone. They were tortured, and anyone else that could have been involved was also tortured and interrogated. And this is where it became a multi-level marketing torture scheme. Each person who was tortured would essentially would give up three more people or were forced to give up people who actually were not involved by this by the now power-tripping interrogators. So you see what's happening here. The interrogators go to the cohort, torture and, well, hurt them. 
the cohort gives up some more names or are compelled to give up more names. And by the end of it all, according to the history, tens of thousands ended up being killed, either by execution or by torturing. Wow. I told you, it's still the ancient world. This is like the Red Scare on steroids, and hey, everything is bigger in China. This was becoming such a mess that even one of the interrogators started petitioning the emperor to stop this. All right, I think we got them all. And the empress herself even joined in to quell this. And eventually, it was stopped. But yes, this was quite the witch hunt. Tens of thousands of people are now dead in this multi-level marketing scheme of torture, interrogation, and execution and exilement. But wait, there is indeed more. Some people just do not look around and see the bigger picture. Because in 73, the Prince of Huayang got himself caught up in hiring warlocks to curse the emperor. I, like my gosh, again? You didn't learn from the first guy or the second guy or the 10,000 people associated with the second incident? We have barely talked about warlocks and curses and then boom, boom, boom. It all happens in the span of five years. Like the past two, Prince Huayang was found out and not executed and instead was merely heavily demoted and stripped of powers and titles. But like the last time, associates of Prince Huayang, well, the accused, did not get such an easy experience as their head of the warlock hiring conspiracy. Many of his friends were then tortured, and just like the last time, were then either executed or exiled. Yikes. Now, by 73, the Han possessed, and we're getting away from warlocks now, we're going back to policy. By 73, the Han Dynasty possessed a different strength than that of the early reign of Emperor Guangwu. Before, Emperor Guangwu had to be very pragmatic. He had to. He was laying the foundation of a new, restarted dynasty. And that was seen when he let the Shi Yu kingdoms in large part fall out of the Han's orbit. They just couldn't, at that moment, maintain that sort of alliance. Early on, Emperor Ming drew a line in the sand. We know that. But by 73, he was ready to move the goalposts and reassert dominance. So, after a few minor incursions, the Han sent an expedition north, over the border. Look, the expeditions didn't do much. They didn't destroy the remnants of what used to be the amazing Xiongnu. But, what it did do is that it showed the Xiongnu that playtime was over. The Han was back, and it was not to be tried with. They were now strong enough to come across the border and hunt them down. No more free raids. And the Han did not stop there. While they were indeed back, per se, or at least on their way back, they were not ready to fully march back into the Shi Yu kingdoms and reassert themselves fully. Instead, they denied, just like Emperor Guangwu did, they denied repeated Shi Yu demands for assistance. I mean, they are saying, oh my gosh, please help us. But in 74, a Han expedition force feeling out the area 
realized that northern Xiongnu ambassadors were actually in town. They were in the kingdom and in that city. Not strong enough for a full-fledged campaign to reassert their domination over the Shiyu kingdoms, the Han were still strong enough to, yeah, kill the ambassadors. And like that, the ones defected to the Xiongnu, Shiyu kingdoms, the ones that had said, all right, well, if you're not going to help us, we're going to defect. Well, those began to fall back into line, or at least began facing the Han a little more. A lot was still to be done, but we have passed our all-important year. Because, year 65, that is indeed the year, allegedly, according to some people, that Buddhism came to China. Okay, look, I gotta be honest. The actual year isn't known. I'm just sticking to one year one historian gave. I could give you hundreds of different examples of when the first time might have been. Ancient historians argue about it. Modern historians argue about it. Buddhism may have shown up in bits and pieces before or not. And maybe it came just after this. But it is in this era that it does indeed show up, or at least looks like it did. The question is first, how did it show up? Then the question after that, is what is this new religion and we'll go from there. Because here's the deal. Buddhism doesn't light the world on fire. Doesn't show up and create religious tension. And it will evolve and change and grow and shrink and evolve again for the next 2,000 years. We're not getting into the entire history of Buddhism in China. We are simply laying a foundation now for how it got there, what they were saying, how it was taken by the people, and then as we progress in the show, we will continue to add on to it. The question of how it got to China may seem simple at first glance. Buddhism originated in India. We know that, which is right next to China. Simple. So it just spread across the border. Yeah, but think about this a little deeper. What divides India and China? Oh yeah, the largest mountain range on the entire planet. Were merchants and missionaries just hiking through the Himalayas? Probably not. Or did they go around the Himalayas and enter China by the west? Or did they go from the coast, the eastern coast of India, and travel by boat and entered through southern China? Once you start thinking about it, you realize it's actually pretty hard to determine where in the world and when in the world Buddhism actually shows up. And different pieces of evidence point to different theories. You have different regions of China in the West that have their own little evidence that it came there. Oh, this is the earliest year. But then you have evidence from the South that say, oh, well, look, it might have come through here. And we will get into why it's so hard to understand when and where Buddhism came from. Because Buddhism in China, I will say this before we dive any deeper in, at least on the onset, was very different than Buddhism in India. Buddhism in China blends with Taoism and Confucianism. It does not blend with them in India, but in China, it sort of just kind of co-opted different ideas. So it is hard to differentiate what little nuance different in Taoism might have been an actual Buddhist teaching. Anyway, different pieces of evidence point to different theories. And again, this is not just a question we ask now with modern science and understanding. This has been an ongoing debate 
since the moment Buddhism shows up right here in around 65. The scene becomes clearer from the middle of the second century onward. And look, there's the first known missionaries did start writing their translation uh, of these texts in the capital of Luoyang. And now it's the book of later Han records that states that in 65, Prince Liu Ying of Chu, quote, delighted in the practices of Huang Lao Taoism. And this is what Buddhism was. It was an offshoot of Taoism almost. And it had both Buddhist monks and lay people at sort of his court who presided over these new Buddhist ceremonies. Again, about 65. So there's the overland route hypothesis that it comes over through the West. And this was favored by historian Tang Yong Tong. And again, it's that they went around the Himalayas and came in from the West to the Kushan Empire. And now, this hypothesis, it is simple. Buddhism came to China, and it was first practiced in the Western regions and eventually got to the capital of Luoyang. And it's then, in around 68, that Emperor Ming of Han establishes the White Horse Temple in 68. Okay, that seems possible. But in 2004, again, this debate goes on for literally about 2,000 years. In 2004, Rong Xinjiang, who was a history professor in Beijing at Peking University, looked at the evidence again, looked at the overland hypothesis, and looked at the maritime hypothesis where it comes up through southern China through an unbelievably extensive investigation of all recent discoveries, research, and all these different things. And he pointed out that the view and the opinion that, quote, Buddhism was transmitted to China by the sea comparatively lacks convincing and supporting materials, and some arguments are not sufficiently rigorous. And essentially, and the thing is that this is where modern evidence helps, because he has the historical texts, but we were also able to dig up things in the 80s, which the most important was first century Buddhist manuscripts found in Afghanistan. And therefore, the timing of 68 with the White Horse Temple and some of the writings in the capital indicate that it would make more sense with these findings in Afghanistan and Western China that Buddhism did take the overland route to reach Han China, or at least the one that mattered the most. And after entering into China, this is where it gets confusing. Buddhism immediately blended itself in and joined up and co-opted Taoism and other Chinese belief systems like, well, Confucianism, like the shamanistic aspects. There was so much overlap that different parts were elevated and suppressed in Chinese Buddhism. So we see that something's happening, but it's not just, oh, this is Buddhism, this is what we believe, and therefore, well, this is it. It comes in and it, and it immediately blends itself in with the local, already pre-existing thought processes. This is best pointed out by a French researcher and historian named Henry Maspero. And again, I don't speak French either. He stated that, quote, it was a very curious fact, end quote, that really, as what I've mentioned, throughout most of the Han Dynasty, Taoism and Buddhism were, quote, constantly confused and appeared as a single religion, end quote. Yeah. And it really wasn't until 100 years later, in about 166, that the Han were clearly making offerings to a Buddha or of some sort of figure like that. So the reason we're not going to dive too deep into this is because even the Chinese at the time don't even know what Buddhism is. 
And now this is an excerpt from, well, an old history paper I had to read. Now the paper states, it's a very, it's a academic source, but this is the best way to describe it because through Taoism and Buddhism sort of coalescing, it becomes known as the Da Dao, the great Dao. So it's, I want to explain Buddhism and I will probably next episode explain what Buddhism literally is because I'm looking at the time and we're running out a little bit. But Buddhism as you know it, the one from India with Buddhism obtaining Nirvana, no attachment, those basic principles, reincarnation, true. But when they come to China, whether it's because they're playing a game of telephone or because these missionaries are intentionally playing off of pre-existing Chinese beliefs, we don't know, it becomes something a little different in China. And that is why Chinese Buddhism is a descriptor for Buddhism. It's changed since then and there's a lot of evolution. So don't take this as the current view of Chinese Buddhism. And the reason this episode came out so late is that I'm trying to get my head around it too. Because while I know, yes, I've taken classes on this, I understand White Lotus Buddhism is very different than a lot of that from Central and Northern and Southern India, and even that from Vietnam or any surrounding regions, it's very complicated. But anyway, this is an exact academic source, and I'll include the source on the website. Now it said that, quote, one of the earliest references to the Trinitarian idea is attributed to Li Shiqian, a prominent scholar of the 6th century, who wrote that, quote, Buddhism is the sun, Taoism is the moon, and Confucianism the five planets. Li likens the three traditions to significant heavenly bodies, suggesting that although they remain separate, they also coexist as equally indispensable phenomena of the natural world. Other opinions stress the essential unity of the three religious systems. One popular proverb opens by listing the symbols that distinguish the religions from each other, but closes with the assertion that they are fundamentally the same. Quote, the three teachings, the gold and cinnabar of Taoism, the relics of Buddhist figures, as well as the Confucian virtues of humanity and righteousness are basically one tradition, end quote. Stating the point more bluntly, some phrases have been put to use by writers in the long, complicated history of what Western authors have dubbed, quote, syncretism. Syncretism? This is me speaking. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M? Hmm? It will be on the website. Anyway, point is, people do not understand the difference, even today, of what was Buddhism and what was Taoism. Because it's hardly differentiated between Buddhist nirvana and Taoist immortality. These are the ideas. They're very similar. And it's not like, oh, they got them confused. It's that they intentionally blended them. 500 years to 600 years after this, you have Chinese historians. Yes, they have now differentiated the three and are still saying they are of one total universe. And it's hard for us. And this is probably where I'm going to have to sort of begin winding this episode down. Because we in the West have a very different conception of religion. Let's just put it that way. You don't believe in my God to death with you. Oh, you believe in a slightly different variation of the same religion, death to you. Because we've gone over this before and I think it's important for us to bring it up again. I am no expert in Chinese religion. 
But what I hope I can convey is at least one, a curiosity, but two, the imprint that you have to detach any Western religious understanding from this history. And it's hard. It's hard for me. That's why this episode took so long. There is a religious aspect, a spiritual aspect, and a philosophical aspect to Chinese religious history that is just different than many other cultures. There is no one true God. Even hundreds of years later, after this point in 65 to 68 uh, AD, you still have Chinese historians viewing them while differently as one in the same universe and one in the same spiritual importance. And that is why I don't want to actually dive into what Buddhism is today. Because that actually is a whole discussion, especially with White Lotus Buddhism, the difference between Taoism and Buddhism. Where did these differences start showing up, and what are these differences? Because they will eventually solidify themselves, and they are very different today. But yeah, Buddhism is here. It's pretty much Taoism, kind of, at least the way people are viewing it. But it is one of the largest religions on earth. So, next week, we will dive into Buddhism what they were actually saying and doing back in this time. And I have to preface, back in this era. Because I could go on and on and on about what the original beliefs were, what the original story was, which we will cover. But we're not going to dive into what it becomes. There's no need to do that. Because we want to understand what people at the time were believing and understanding. And it will help us understand how it does end up evolving. So, remember... Please rate the show five stars, share with your friends, follow it, check out the website, and please email me. I love getting to know all of you. Rate the show five stars, check out the website. Thank you so much for listening. And I know this one took a while, but I'll see you all next week on the history of China. <laughs>